This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Chicken Fingers. Do you wish eating chicken tenders had a more phallic undertone? Try Chicken Fingers today. Welcome to episode 80 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today, we are talking about environmentalists, the only people who hate baked Alaska. Actually, today won't be so much about environmentalists as it is about environmentalism, and it's a bit of an unconventional episode. Our guest today is Dr. Jenny Price, author of the book Stop Saving the Planet, an Environmentalist Manifesto. As you can tell from the title, it's really one big hot take, and I think in large part a good one. The back of the book says we've been saving the planet for decades, and environmental crises just get worse. Why aren't we cleaning up the toxic messes and rolling back climate change? And why do so many Americans hate environmentalists? And Dr. Price is right on the money with these questions. In 1991, 78% of Americans identified as environmentalists. By 2021, it had dropped to 41%. Which is wild, because 41% is like the minimum now for percent of Americans that believe XYZ. Every political poll, it's like, oh, 59% of Americans like cheese, and 41% want to put a raccoon in your closet. The term has become oddly charged and controversial, and it's weird, because if you take out the politics, if you take out any environmentalist individuals or groups you may disagree with, and just get down to basics, it's hard to say full stop that you don't care about the environment, even if you see it as one priority on a long list of other ones. Clean air, clean water, and a healthy climate that doesn't flood your town? Sounds pretty nice. So we're going to chat with Dr. Price in a bit, but first, I'm going to give you my thoughts, because when I read the book, I agreed with a lot, I disagreed with some things, and I kind of had my own takes on some things too. There's no right answer to the question of why environmentalists are dropping like flies, so I'm glad that you can hear my perspective, hear her perspective, and then think about it yourself. And with that, let's dive in. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. If you want to take two minutes to help out The Sweaty Penguin, you can either leave us a five-star rating and review, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. Doing either earns you a special shout-out at at the end of the show, joining the Patreon gets you merch, bonus content, and a whole lot more. What do a lot of people think of when they think of an environmentalist? I'm a TV guy, so I'll use some TV examples. We think of Lisa Simpson when she lived in a tree. We think of Marshall on How I Met Your Mother making invitations out of toilet paper and forcing the waitress at the bar to drag massive loads of empty bottles to the recycling. We think of Jess on New Girl demanding that a restaurant owner stop delivering paper menus around the neighborhood because it wastes paper. 
We think of Doug on King of Queens, going vegan, making Carrie wear a dress made out of hemp, and putting loose snap peas in her purse. Even if it's completely exaggerated, we think of these vegan, organic, thrifted clothes ride your bike to work people that tell you all about their lifestyle and act holier than thou if you don't do the same. I use sitcoms as an example because it's this character that lends itself to being made fun of, and it only works because that attitude comes off elitist. Just listen to this clip of someone trolling a climate protest in Houston. Hi ma'am, I really love your shirt. Where did you travel from to get here today? Which, uh, I'm from Houston. Okay. Yes. How did you get here? Like what transportation method? Uh, car. Okay. Yes. Do you think that's kind of hypocritical? No. Why is that? Cars cause pollution. Okay. No more questions. <laughs> I do think this video was just trying to troll people and make them uncomfortable. But I also can't help but think of ways environmentalism brings this criticism onto itself. I've actually been shocked to see that the most common question I get asked since starting The Sweaty Penguin is what can I do? What can individuals do? It makes sense though, right? A lot of environmentalism we see in our daily lives is this bioorganic, ditch the plastic straw, these small actions that are not only putting pressure on individuals, but asking them to make sacrifices. I've seen individual activists on Twitter get asked, do you fly in airplanes or do you consume palm oil, and then get subsequently lectured by other environmentalists. In fact, I've observed a very prevalent dialogue among climate experts about whether or not it's hypocritical that they fly to their UN conferences. You know, to craft treaties to combat climate change. Like, I guess we could do it on Zoom, but what if a country won't turn their camera on? What if you do the math wrong on the breakout rooms? What if a country can't think straight because you convene everyone on a Zoom call and it is inevitably 3 a.m. for someone? And worse, it's 5 p.m. somewhere, too. And perhaps the coup de grace, which may be the most prevalent of these messages, is that humans are the problem. Not our actions, but our very existence. I hear the term overpopulation all the time, which is a very dark word when you stop to think about it. So I don't know where the line is between how environmentalists actually behave and the exaggerated caricature that's been ingrained into public perception. Almost everyone I know who's an active environmentalist is very friendly and does not really talk about their diet or wardrobe or houseplants or new heat pump unless you ask. But environmentalism as a whole may want to have this conversation more. Why do people think of environmentalism this way? Is this emphasis on the individual shutting people out? When people ask, is it hypocritical that you drove your car to this climate protest? How do you answer that? Because if the onus is on individual action, particularly sacrifices which cost extra money, then it is hypocritical to drive a car. But I think we can all agree that's a ridiculous expectation to put on people. I'm not saying you'll get rid of all the jokes and trolls, but they're much more likely to go after people when they perceive people to be on a high horse. I mean, horse humor's great. A pony goes to the hospital. He says, Doc, I have a terrible sore throat. 
And the doctor says, oh, don't worry, buddy. You're just a little horse. Get it? Because horse. And it's not just jokes and trolls. In a much more subtle way, polluting corporations can use this individualistic mentality to blame individuals for their actions. For example, here's Bart Elmore talking about a nonprofit launched in 1953 called Keep America Beautiful, which leads recycling and anti litter campaigns, and some say even coined the term litterbug. When you hear Keep America Beautiful, you think, like, wow, this sounds like an organization started by a bunch of kind of bearded environmentalists, or at least that's what I thought. Um, you know, because you see this sign everywhere in the United States. It's still a very present organization. But it was founded, surprisingly, by the beverage brewing and canning and packaging industries, right? The idea was that let's tell consumers, they're the bad ones, they're the litter bugs, they're throwing this away. Industry shouldn't be blamed for all of this waste. What's more, beverage companies don't even hide it. The American Beverage Association's website proudly displays that member companies like Coca-Cola and Pepsi were among the founding members of Keep America Beautiful. Now, I don't think awareness about recycling and littering is bad. I do think people can be held accountable in a friendly and supportive way, especially for something as easy as not littering. Like, just don't litter. You don't even have to do anything. You could just sit on the couch watching Hype House. It's that easy. But I agree with Bart that it's really disingenuous coming from beverage companies. Rather than investing in solutions to aluminum and plastic waste, they're investing in a nonprofit aiming to blame consumers for the problem. Now, this does become a bit of a chicken and egg situation. I'm not saying the chicken littered while it crossed the road, but I am saying maybe campaigns like these are part of what formed this very individual-centered environmentalism. Or maybe it existed already and companies are exploiting it. Either way, it's something for environmentalism to contend with. And that's where it gets really tricky, right? If people shoot back at beverage companies and say individuals aren't the problem, you're the problem, then they're deflecting blame too. No one is forcing us to buy these beverages and give these companies money, so it's a tough argument to make anyway. If someone is forcing you, that's peer pressure and that's a no-no. That's why I look at this less as a question of blame and more as a question of path of least resistance. I've seen different numbers, but the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development reported in 2019 that only 9% of global plastic is recycled. Some of that's an issue of recycling availability, some plastics can't be recycled, maybe people don't have complete information about recycling, but I think anyone who has looked in a garbage can at Starbucks knows it to be the case that even in perfect circumstances, there just won't be a lot of people recycling. On the flip side, if you worked with beverage companies to find financially viable ways to reduce waste or worked with policymakers to create regulations or incentives around plastic and aluminum reduction or recycling, you might be able to spur change faster and at a wider scale. And some environmentalists know all that and do that, but again, it's not necessarily in the public discourse. 
We think of environmentalism as recycle, don't be a litter bug, not tell our representatives and our beverage companies that we want to reduce waste. And I think that's where I'm seeing this disconnect. I think the majority of Americans are aware that any solution starting with if everyone would just dot 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 is likely impractical and effective and may even come off elitist. So the challenge is getting across the point that littering or any other issue harms the environment while acknowledging the roles of companies and the government in the issue. Environmentalism also struggles a bit with handling environmental solutions. Dr. Price's book argues that environmentalism currently embraces all solutions, even baby steps, as equally effective. And that attitude has consequences. Listen to this commercial from Shell. As an energy user, we aim to be net zero across all our operations. For example, a small Shell installation producing gas in the North Sea was the first of its kind to be powered by wind and solar energy. And our Shell-owned service stations in the UK are powered by renewable electricity. If you didn't catch that, Shell is patting themselves on the back for using clean energy to power their gas stations and a natural gas installation. And to me, I think this is where it gets a little nuanced. I don't know any environmentalists who would celebrate this. If anything, they'd insist this is greenwashing and shouldn't count for anything. But I don't think the issue is necessarily baby steps. Shell and others still have to produce fossil fuels as the world makes the transition to clean energy. We're not just going to turn off everyone's trucks and gas stoves tomorrow and call it a day. So if Shell can obtain that fuel in an emissions-free way, I guess that's a good thing. What bothers me is the tone of the commercial. If you had a Shell executive on camera saying, Look, we're using solar panels to power the gas station. I know this is really dumb, but you all still have cars, and we're trying to give you your gas and make the process marginally better. But while that's going on, we're changing our whole business model. Here's our plan. And we're lobbying policymakers to help us make that transition. And the executive can go on and on and on. But if it were in context, if they could laugh at themselves a little bit, I don't think I'd mind the commercial as much. I mind it because with the music and the voiceover and the language, they act like it's a huge deal, something to be really excited about, and not the tiny, sort of funny baby step that it is. I'm not opposed to baby steps, as fun as it would be to walk around finding toddlers and say, hey, diaper, sit down. But I am opposed to misleading people. As I understand it, Shell has put out some loose climate plans, but nothing to write home about. And if there's anything that makes that clear, it's that they had nothing better to brag about in their climate ad than a wind and solar powered natural gas installation. But while I don't think environmentalism takes kindly to this move from Shell, I'm probably giving them more credit than environmentalism would. I do see a lot of environmentalists communicate climate solutions in an odd way. There's a lot of doom in environmentalism. We did some surveys ourselves actually last fall and found people perceive environmental issues as depressing and overwhelming. And because of that, a lot of environmentalists want to emphasize solutions. But there's a term in journalism called hero worship, 
which isn't a sandwich-themed religion, but a story that excessively admires a person, organization, or idea without giving adequate space to discuss limitations, nuance, or drawbacks. And I tend to see a lot of hero worship in the environmental world, both from journalists and from activists who do a lot of outreach and communication. Now, journalism that includes hero worship? Very different situation. That's just not good journalism. But for environmentalism, even though environmentalists are more than welcome to express strong opinions, hero worshiping can be counterproductive. When I see a video or a tweet or what have you that gets so excited because X new startup is making zero waste plastic wrap or Y city is putting solar panels on their trampoline park and it says how great this news is. Not to say these aren't great stories to share. I love these stories. But I think they get overwhelming too because they aren't large scale systemic change. Whereas I rarely hear people mention that in the United States, greenhouse gas emissions peaked in 2007 and are down 12% since then. Coal consumption for electricity in the U.S. is down 58% since 2007. Globally, before 2015, we were on track to warm the planet by nearly 4 degrees Celsius by 2100, but thanks to clean energy growth and current policies, we've already slashed that projection to about 3 degrees Celsius by 2100. I actually read an article this morning that had a graph with 3 degrees Celsius warming as the worst-case scenario, and then various scenarios where we cut that. And I got so frustrated because a goal like containing global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius is so much less daunting if you know that we've already been moving in that direction. Not fast enough, not in any definitive organized political way, but we're not starting from ground zero. So it goes back to this baby steps thing, right? In my opinion, there's nothing wrong with baby steps. We don't get anywhere without them but it's the way we communicate them, the way we give them massive amounts of attention. Even though something like marginal improvements in global temperature projections are not perfect solutions, that's actually very messy and nuanced and a lot less fun than whatever compost some startup made out of used socks and Christmas ornaments, but I do think it inspires a lot more hope than some of these very small actions that environmentalism seems to love. People know one small action won't save the world, so embracing them too much can start to come off disingenuous. And a lot of this kind of culminates into what I guess you could call Dr. Price's thesis, which ultimately inspired me to want to do this episode. A lot of people, when they think of environmentalism, think of the environment as this entity out there that we have to protect. Whereas in reality, and any of you who listen to the podcast probably implicitly know this by now, we are the environment. We are fire, air, water, earth, PK freeze, PK thunder, all of that is true. It is deeply ingrained into our lives. Here's UC Boulder's Dr. Ryan Vashan reflecting on that idea. The environment is important to me because I'm part of it. It's like saying, hey, is this hand important to me? Yeah, it's mine. Why, why, why else wouldn't I care about it? And so if we're looking out there and saying it's not part of me, then we're not going to personally engage. Well, actually, Ryan, that's my hand. So give it back. 
But he actually makes a really good point. Our food, our materials, our water, our land, our energy, it's all interconnected and part of the environment. And there's no balancing the environment with the economy, because the economy is built on resources found in the environment. One depends on the other. It's like balancing sinks with water, or balancing Rob Schneider with Adam Sandler. So I'm glad Ryan says we're part of the environment, because when that goes unsaid, as it too often does, we end up with a far less compelling brand of environmentalism, and people don't personally engage. Environmentalism is not only about the polar bears or the sea turtles, cute as they may be. It's about the farmer, whose crops failed after a heat wave. It's about the city struggling to protect itself from hurricanes and sea level rise. It's about the low-income and minority communities that are disproportionately located near power plants and toxic waste sites. Increasingly, environmentalists are aware of this and talk about this, but I don't get the sense that it's reached the public yet. Of course it hasn't. As long as people are ranking environment among a list of other priorities, or talk environment versus economy, or worse, working class communities or minority communities or developing nations don't feel like environmentalism is for them. Again, these are just a few of my thoughts after thinking about this steep decline in American environmentalists and reading Dr. Price's book. There's a lot of other elements to this too that I don't have time to cover. I talk every week on Tip of the Iceberg about where people miss nuance in climate news stories, and very often I consider aspects that environmentalists miss. We did an episode almost a year ago on NGOs, which covered how organizations within environmentalism might not be living up to their full potential. And politics and polarization is actually a big one too in my opinion, though that's another can of worms. But it's a tricky question of where to go from here, because I think the majority of the gripes I mentioned are not actual things that real live environmentalists do out in the wild. I think there's a small few being condescending or lacking nuance or focusing excessively on individuals or what have you, and it gets blown out of proportion. I mean, where does any stereotype come from? For me, where I've found a niche in the environmental space is making issues less overwhelming, less politicized, and more fun. As you probably know by now, humor is not the only tool we use, though I did have comedy writing experience and thought that would be a breath of fresh air for these sometimes depressing topics. I mean, who doesn't love a good pun about chemical plants, right? That's something everyone should want to keep an eye on. But part of our strategy, too, is presenting every angle of a problem to be sure it's clear how the problem affects each of our lives. We present solutions as opinions, we don't advocate specific ones, and in fact we go into the pros and cons of every solution. We contextualize everything so you know exactly what the scope of the problem is, and you don't have to wonder if it is some apocalyptic thing where someone steals your salami sandwich. We give hope, but not false hope. If I don't feel hopeful, I will tell you. And driving all of that is our devotion to critical thinking, where I have to give credit to our researchers who read through academic papers, fact check every script, have meetings to open up each other's minds to different angles on these issues. It's counterintuitive, 
but I really believe honesty, critical thinking, and nuance make these things less overwhelming, even if it's something scary like the what-would-happen-to-the-environment-in-an-all-out-nuclear-war conversation we had on Wednesday. But there's a lot of other ways folks can communicate issues or otherwise be an environmentalist, and I don't want to say everyone should do it our way. What I do think is a decent idea, though, is actually talking to the communities who are affected by environmental problems but aren't fans of environmentalism right now. According to Cornell University's Dr. Jonathan Schultz, these communities have very different perspectives on the environment than what might be the tree-hugging, organic, vegan environmental stereotype. Some of the groups that are most affected by environmental problems are least likely to have a seat at the table. So if you're thinking about ways to engage members of those communities, I think these data might have some really practical insights, right? Because you could go to communities and talk about climate change and invasive species, but those might not be the issues that really count as the leading environmental issues for the communities you most want to reach. Like, for certain communities, it might be the flooding that, that, that floods um, their city sidewalks. That might be the pressing environmental issue that prevents their kids from, from enjoying the city park. Jonathan did a study on this and found lower-income people and minorities actually consider poverty to be an environmental issue, racial justice to be an environmental issue, issues that they engage with on a regular basis that have environmental ties. Like I said before, they might not be thinking about polar bears, but if they're thinking about their farm or the mine they worked in that was shut down, or the power plants that are spewing toxins into their air, or the extreme weather that is causing property damage, environmentalism has an interesting perspective on these issues. And these people have interesting perspectives on these issues. And I don't want to act like I know how to do it. I can barely approach a stranger to ask where the bathroom is. But I can imagine a conversation where environmentalists say to someone, hey, what are the issues you and your family deal with day to day? And how can we help? Because even if you don't think it's environmental, it actually likely is. If they say, we need money, we need good paying jobs. Well, all right, there's a lot of work to get done for climate change. What are you good at? What do you want to do? If they say, our crops are failing. Well, the environmental world has done a lot of research into this area and might have ideas. If there's extreme weather, if there's health issues, justice issues, certainly environmentalism can be a mobilizing force since it connects the dots between so many different things. Again, I don't know how exactly this engagement happens, but when I hear about Jonathan's work, I see how there's so much potential for common ground here. And regardless of politics or anything like that, I think the right kind of environmentalism that puts these communities' needs front and center would maybe have some broader appeal. And I almost went into some individual solutions too, but I decided not to. Because one, I've given my take on this before, there's a column on our website about it. And two, isn't that the point? We're talking less about what to do, and more about a shift in thinking. And again, this is a very opinion-driven episode. It's not loaded with plant facts. So I hope you'll think on this. And if you agree or disagree on parts of this, let me know. I really don't have all the answers. But I do hope at the very least, this episode expresses that environmentalism is losing popularity and has some reflection to do. 
Maybe it's a bigger issue. Maybe it turns out to just be a PR thing, because I've seen a lot of environmentalists breaking these stereotypes and doing really cool things that the public seems unaware of for whatever reason. So I don't know about you, but I think we'd all prefer an environmentalism that doesn't demand expensive individual sacrifices, includes all different perspectives, embraces nuance, and gives hope but not false hope. That sounds a lot better than a bunch of diplomats trying to find the hand-raise button on a 3am Zoom call. Do you like eating fingers? I thought so, you freak. Well, chicken fingers are for you. With chicken fingers, you can take fried chicken, which sounds delicious, and suddenly make it sound disgusting. Disease-ridden industrial chicken farms aren't gross at all, but once you tell people they're eating fingers, they'll be running for the hills. How fun! Chicken fingers, because it was a slightly better idea than chicken toes. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Jenny Price, a research fellow at the Sam Fox School of Design and Visual Arts at Washington University in St. Louis. Dr. Price, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. You recently published the book, Stop Saving the Planet, an Environmental Manifesto. Tell us a little bit about the book and what inspired you to write it. The basic premise of the book is that it starts with a question, why are environmental problems getting worse? right? Especially with the explosion of concern about environmental uh, crises. And I say in the book, the book is really about, well, I think that one of the reasons is that a lot of the strategies, in fact, most of the popular strategies that we're using to tackle these crises are not working and that they're actually pretty ineffective and in some cases making the problems worse. So that's what the book is about. It's about why aren't they working, but the book is especially about why do people continue to believe that they'll work? Just so our listeners know, you've already donated a signed copy of Stop Saving the Planet, which will go to our Patreon raffle. So thank you so much for doing that. We'll start raffling off books when we get to 25 patrons. And I've got quite the little bookshelf building up here. So to our listeners, if you join the Patreon, you have a really good shot at one of those books. But let's talk more about this book. So you use two key terms throughout the book, green virtue and whole planitude. Could you define these terms for our audience? I think environmentalism has been mostly rooted in this idea that environment is this place out there, right? It's this very, very deeply rooted Western idea that environment is this kind of world out there. It's separate from humans. It's this kind of pure, authentic place. And I think what environmentalism has not been very good at for, you know, 50 years is to really showing us how our lives are foundationally environmental, that the shirt I'm wearing is made out of environment, that the laptop I'm staring at is made out of environment. So green virtue, I say, if you think about the problem is saving the environment. There are these two kind of environmental credos, and they're almost like instincts, and everybody will know them immediately, right? And one is green virtue, which is this virtue that we've historically attached to saving and caring about the environment as this place out there that humans aren't part of that's free of human corruption, right? And everybody knows about that, this greener than thou, my Tesla is better than your, you know, Prius, you know, whatever, I eat organic gummy bears, you know, whatever, this kind of greener than thou thing that 
is incredibly annoying. We all know about that. And then the other is whole planetude. And again, this is a refrain that everybody's heard. Just do anything. Anything will save the planet. And it's this idea that if you think about the environment as this one world out there, that anything you do will contribute to saving that world. So we have this um, sort of environmentalist instinct about all these actions will add up, right? Just do anything, you know, just recycle, just buy organic clothes, just change your light bulb. It, it all adds up. I think it's impossible to explain why Americans especially do what they do to say tackle the climate crisis unless you understand the incredible power of green virtue and whole plenitude and this attitude that you're awesome when you do anything to save the planet. I want to get into each of these a little more and let's start with green virtue. Mm -hmm. Um, So you use it to sort of explain also why people hate environmentalists, have anger (laughs) about environmentalists Mm -hmm. when environmentalism seems so innocent and well-meaning. I don't think (laughs) I've personally ever reached the point of hating environmentalists, but certainly (laughs) I've felt frustrated. I've felt cynical. I've felt unwelcome before. So why have environmentalists chosen to embody this kind of holier-than-thou attitude sometimes? And why don't they seem to be moving away from it, knowing full well that it rubs people the wrong way? Well, I think, first of all, that's a really great question. Uh, It's really a question at the heart of the book. Why do we just keep doing this stuff? But I think it's so deeply rooted. These assumptions are so deeply rooted in how we think about environment. So again, one of the questions that really drives the book is why it's really a puzzle that's important for environmentalists to think about. Why do the people who suffer most by far from environmental problems, right? The people who are in the low-lying areas for the climate crisis, the people with no trees in their neighborhoods, the people who are just drowning in toxics from being surrounded by uh, industry and freeways and you know the lower-income neighborhoods and especially communities of color. Why are they so convinced that environmentalism is not about them? I think that's a really important question, right? And the answer traditionally has been, well, they're being manipulated, they don't understand. But actually, in my book, I say, well, I think it's because environmentalism hasn't been about them. And I'm hardly the first person saying this. We have a, you know, now, let's see, about 40 years of an environmental justice movement certainly saying this. So I think that what we have now is basically the culmination of all this class conflict, really, and all this resentment towards environmentalists. And I say, okay, it's really, really logical, actually, because look at what's happening. All these feel-good solutions, all this greenwashing, all this, you know, light bulb changing, all this whatever, isn't really tackling these crises effectively. So the people who are really taking it in the neck are not seeing a lot of improvements, right? And at the same time, they're the people who contribute least to environmental crises. They're consuming the least. You know, they're spending the least money in general. They're, they're contributing the least. They're benefiting the least from how we change environments to live. And they're suffering the most. And what they're seeing is all these feel-good solutions like Priuses and safe paints and, you know, things like that. They're cleaning up other people's bodies in affluent neighborhoods, other people's kids' bodies, other people's neighborhoods, uh, but they're not really seeing the benefit. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point about kind of environmental justice, climate justice, I think you're right. And I think they've increasingly become more and more at the forefront of environmental movements. I've been Mm -hmm. seeing especially the last few years and I think to a lot of people, it's just an academic term that they don't know what it means. So they may be not, are not seeing that environmentalists are, it really is just about caring for the little guy, but people may not be seeing that. So I think that 
when you kind of point out in the book how there's a perception that environmentalists are elitist and that they don't care for the little guy, I think mm-hmm. there's maybe some truth to that when you see there's so many Hollywood elites involved and maybe they're not thinking mm-hmm. about like a coal miner who's out of a job. But do you get the sense that with the environmental justice movement, there is more care toward the little person? And if so, how is that message better? I think that that's exactly what we're seeing is the environmental justice movement is finally having, I think, some kind of main, real mainstream impact. And you see that especially with young people who are, of course, going to inherit this planet. You see that with, you know, Sunrise Movement and Fridays for Future, that they're really emphasizing the intersection of justice and environment. I get really frustrated because I think that for so long, the rhetoric, the environmentalist rhetoric was about how to balance the economy and environment. Again, it's a refrain, an environmentalist refrain. Well, we have to balance, you know, jobs with environmental protection. And that just drives me nuts because basically what that says, if you follow out the logic, is that a healthy economy requires environmental devastation, right? And if you live in Appalachia, in a coal town in Appalachia, and you're struggling in this economy, right? It's because the air that your children breathe isn't dirty enough. I mean, that's basically the logic and it doesn't really make any sense. And the way I would put it is that our economy is foundationally environmental, right? What is an economy except how we change environments to create our stuff and wealth, to provide our needs and wants, and how we distribute the benefits and the costs. So I would say that it's not so much about using, say, the climate crisis to address the massive inequities in our economy. It's that the very foundation of a democracy is to change environments sustainably and equitably, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think that's a big point we raise every week on the podcast, how the environment and economy are usually in sync with each other and not opposed Mm -hmm. to each other. I think that's really important. So you say that we can't shop our way out of climate change. (laughs) We shouldn't for example, junk our gasoline-powered car that runs fine for the latest Tesla because Uh the inputs to create a new car have an impact that outweighs any additional mileage you put on the old car. And we can play out many of those examples. But to me, that's something exciting about environmentalism, that it can be about saving money. For people who really like shopping, this is a drawback. And for a much (laughs) larger group of people, they just don't want to be told what to do. So Do you see a way to sort of reframe the kind of reduce, consume less mantra into more of a save your money, don't stress about all these green products message? And do you think that would reach a broader audience? I'm going to push back against that question just a little bit, if that's all right, and say that I'm kind of losing interest in telling people what they can individually do. Because I think one of the real problems historically in environmentalism has been this enormous predominant emphasis on what you personally can do. I think there are three kind of kinds of feel-good solutions, right? And one of them is that you personally can solve climate change from your kitchen, which I think it's not that people shouldn't act individually and ethically, but I think it's really prevented us from saying, okay, no, we need big systemic solutions. Okay. The second kind of, of fallacious solution, I think, is that We're going to clean up the messes after we make them instead of focusing on not making the messes in the first place. Right. And this has been our emphasis on recycling. It's now an emphasis on technological solutions on carbon capture, plastics. You know, the third, which I think really is the biggest kind of nonsense 
pretend solution is we're going to use the problem to solve the problem. And that gets into green consumerism. It's also about carbon markets. It's a lot of different solutions, but we're going to use an economy that is hardwired to ignore environmental costs to solve the problems that an economy that's hardwired to ignore environmental costs inevitably creates. So I think, you know, again, so much of the book is really about zooming out and thinking bigger and asking bigger questions about what's actually causing uh, the problem. Is that what you're asking or is that, is that much more or much you know, less? When I, well, when I talk about individual action, mm-hmm. I think I tend to lean in the direction of if there's actions that you want to take that are easy for you to take, mm-hmm. go for it. But any solution starting with if everyone would just X, Y, Z is not <laughs> a solution because people just right. don't behave that way. Um, and I think that would annoy people even more if environmentalists were saying, here's everything you have to do and gave a laundry list. Um, I only bring it up in the context of, I very often get asked like, what can I do? And I'm like, okay, well, mm-hmm. I guess I can think of some things if you really want homework, but you do have at the end of the book, a whole list of uh, individual actions there. So what would your message be to people? Do you feel like people have some sort of role, even if it's not necessarily, what do I buy at the grocery store? or What new car do I get? Or that kind of thing? Yes, I'm so glad you asked. I started even before I was writing the book and I was presenting a lot of this material I was thinking about to college students. And I could just see them deflate as I, as I was, you know, I thought, oh, this is a really smart talk. I'm going to really teach these college students how to think differently, you know, and I could just see the light go out of their eyes, you know. And then, of course, the first question afterwards, well, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? Because I think that you know, one of the ways in which I think my book is a little bit different from um, work I really admire, like Naomi Klein's work, and, you know, is that I don't think it's all hypocrisy, these feel-good nonsense solutions. I think there's a lot of good intentions and that people are desperate to figure out what they can do. So, I decided to put 39 ways to stop saving the planet in the back of the book, but it's really premised on the assertion that, you know, because people are saying this book is about how to think differently, right? And the first thing that people always say to me is, but okay, okay, I'm thinking differently. Now, what do I do? And I used to say, well, I'm not an economist. I'm not an engineer. Here's some, you know, go to the New Economy Coalition site, go to the Beautiful Solutions site, look at Donut Economics, whatever. But I've actually stopped saying that. I'm like, what can you do? Think differently. Because I think that the most important question isn't what to do. We know what to do. So to me, the question is, why aren't we doing it? Why aren't we doing it? And I think that that has everything to do with how we think about economy and environment. And the most important thing we can do right now is to think differently. So the 39 ways to get back to your question and get practical do include practical things. It's like focus on the worst messes. If you live in Beverly Hills, that's probably not where the worst messes are. Like go down to South LA, see what people are doing down there because they're drowning. You know, they're drowning. Everyone almost is sick uh, in South LA, as in Cancer Alley in Louisiana, as in, you know, Newark, New Jersey, a lot of these sacrifice zones. So that's one of them. There are a few suggestions for about how to consume differently and less There's a lot of suggestions for how to make social change instead of, you know, act individually. But a lot of the 39 ways are think differently. When we think of like incremental actions, I mean, that's sort of like the carbon neutral by 2050 that we can't 
measure versus doing something smaller now that we can measure. To me, that tends to seem like a positive that if they're doing some action, then maybe we can both encourage that and be able to acknowledge that that doesn't solve the whole problem. But I'm not exactly sure where that middle ground is because we also do have to make sure it's not just greenwashing or that kind of thing. So how do we approach that if a company does take an action that should be positive, but obviously isn't solving everything at once because that's impossible? Obviously, it's a really good question. It's a question that certainly a lot of people ask me uh, after reading the book. And I would say that we've been saying that incremental change is good for 50 years, right, at least. And where has that gotten us? Where has, you know, if Exxon takes some tiny step, if Exxon buys clean energy in Texas and Wyoming, that's positive. But if you look at what Exxon's actually doing with that clean energy, they're using it to power their West Texas oil field operations, right? They're using it to expand their plastics production, which is their plan B for when uh, we can't use fossil fuels to for energy anymore. So I think, you know, what I would say is where has that gotten us? Also, this idea that individual action is enormously important, you know, changing your light bulbs because people need to feel empowered. People need to feel like they're doing something. I'm like, okay, so we've had an empowerment-based environmentalism for 50 years. When are we going to get to the next step of actually doing something effective? And so to be honest, I've just gotten kind of, I wouldn't say it's extreme. Maybe some people would. I've just lost my interest in, in talking about taking small steps and in making people feel empowered and in, in praising companies that are really the problem. This book is so different from anything else I've ever written. Everything else I've ever written is the tone is more like, let's think about this. You know, you and I could act differently. Let's think about this. And the tone of this book is really just stop it already. Like, stop it. When are we going to stop pretending that these solutions are working? Dr. Price, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This wraps up episode 80 of The Sweaty Penguin. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin, like one of our latest patrons, Riley Osterberg. Thank you so much for subscribing, Riley. We really, really appreciate it. Riley and all our patrons get merch, bonus content, and their questions move to the front of the line for our Tip of the Iceberg podcast. So if you have any questions, Riley, send them in and I'll answer them as quickly as I can. Clips today came from Liberty Hangout, Only Human, Shell, More Than Scientists, and Cornell University. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons, Lawrence Harris and Brownie Central. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of Peril and Promise or the WNET Group. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week.